Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're going to be meeting with Kyle Williams of Investment Property Exchange Services, also known as IPX 1031. Uh, we used IPX last year for an investment property purchase that we had down in Arizona. We did a 1031 exchange. Um, and so we got to kind of see the firsthand process of what that all means and all the details in between. So I wanted to share that with you um, on a high level. And if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you for everyone for joining us. Uh, uh, as Ashley mentioned, 1031 is a very uh, dry topic and can definitely be boring. Anytime you're talking about real estate tax law, it puts people to sleep. So uh, I'll try to keep you guys awake. Uh, real quick, a quick plug um, for IPX, but more importantly, uh, when you refer out, you, you need to know who you're referring to in the 1031 world when you do refer, uh, because 1031s are unregulated. Billions of dollars have been lost, so you have to be extremely careful. Um, there's there's plenty of great companies out there, but you need to actually like look at insurance policies, um, talk to people, uh, know what their background is. We're the exchange division for Fidelity National Financial. So if you've worked at like Chicago Title, Fidelity Tycor, uh, Commonwealth Lawyers, there's there's a whole bunch of others. Fidelity Home Warranty, we're all under that same umbrella. Um, but again, make sure you know who you're working with. Uh, we're a publicly traded company, so we're audited regularly. Our financials are posted online. And most importantly, when you refer to us, your clients will not lose their funds. So what is a 1031 exchange? 1031 exchange allows an investor to sell their investment property and use all the equity, not just the after-tax equity to reinvest into something bigger and better. That's a key phrase, all the equity, not after-tax equity. Uh, there's nothing else like section code 1031 in the Internal Revenue Code. Because there's nothing else that allows you to buy and sell assets over the course of your entire life and never pay taxes. Some people might say, well, what, like, what about my IRA or my 401k? Not the same thing. One, you can't get at those until you're 59 and a half, so you're basically retired. Uh, but with 1031s, you know, you may work with like a young millennial couple, uh, 30 years old. They just bought their first rental two years ago. And they've already got some equity in it. And in another year or two, they're going to sell that and exchange into a duplex or maybe even a couple other properties. And they're going to start building wealth, buying and selling, buying and selling, and not paying taxes on it. Uh, in the 1031 exchange, there's really just two things you want to do. Buy for equal or greater value and reinvest your proceeds. That's it. There's rules about replacing debt. They can get confusing. Uh, but as long as you buy for equal or greater value and reinvest your proceeds, that's all you would need to do. So let's say you sell for a million dollars and have a $400,000 loan that's paid off. So let's, let's forget about closing costs for a minute. We'll just use round numbers. So sell for a million dollars, a $400,000 loan that's paid off leaves us $600,000 in proceeds. As long as we buy for at least a million dollars and reinvest the $600,000 in proceeds, you'll have a successful 1031 exchange. Our job as a qualified intermediary is to hold funds in a safe and secure manner. So let's look at some taxes. Why is the 1031 important? What are you deferring? All right, 1031 permits deferral of capital gains. This is the big one. Uh, a lot of clients will say, uh, we'll call in and say, Kyle, you know, I'm thinking about a 1031, but you know, realistically, I probably won't do one because I'm just going to pay 10% or 15% in taxes. It's basically impossible. Capital gains is based on, uh, it factors into your adjusted gross income. So the total gain from the property, and if you and your spouse work, 
you're going to be over 20%, especially if you've owned a property for any length of time around here and you and your spouse have jobs, you're going to be paying closer to 20% on the long-term capital gains. But it doesn't end there. Uh, the next tax, we call this the hidden tax because most people don't know about it. Unrecognized gain due to depreciation, also known as depreciation recapture. It's taxed at 25% uh, on a completely different set of funds than the capital gains are. So let's talk about that for a minute. Depreciation, you can write off. It's, it's the number one tax benefit to even owning investment real estate. It's an amount you can write off uh, over 27 and a half years on residential property, say rentals. It's gotta be, it, it's not something you do on a primary residence, just investment property. So if you're writing off, um, let's say, let's say that the value of the, the structure, like the improvements on the property of your new rental is worth 550,000. You divide that number out over 27 and a half years. So you're gonna write off $20,000 a year on your taxes for the next 27 and a half years. It's called depreciation. Again, the number one tax benefit to even own investment real estate is that big tax write-off. But guess what? That's taxed at 25%. So let's say you've owned a property for 10 years and you've written off uh, $20,000 a year, we'll say $200,000 on your taxes. That's awesome. I mean, you've written off almost a quarter of a million dollars on your taxes just by owning a piece of investment real estate. But guess what? You're taxed on that at 25%. So there's a check. There's a check to Uncle Sam for $50,000 on depreciation alone. That doesn't even include the capital gain. Because let's say that you uh, you bought the property for um, you know 700,000. Now it's worth uh, 1.2 million. There's $500,000 in gain that you're gonna pay probably close to 20% on. So that's another $100,000 on capital gain. So in that scenario, you know, you're going to have a $150,000 tax bill. And that doesn't even include the net investment income tax, also known as the um, affordable health care tax or the Obamacare tax of 3.8%, basically on top of both of these. So if you ever ask your clients if they're doing a 1031 exchange when they sell their rental or their investment property and they say, oh, I don't think I'm going to have much of a tax, it'll be like 10 or 15%. One, they need to talk to their CPA. Uh, but two, clients always think they're going to pay much less than they think they will pay. Have them give me a call. I can go over rates with them, but uh, they'll definitely want to talk to their CPA and pencil all that out because they will probably pay far more in tax than they think. So let's look at an example here. On the, we're going to sell a property for a million dollars. On the left-hand side, uh, we're going to cash out. We're not going to do a 1031. We've, you know, we've, we've heard about this 1031 thing. It sounds confusing to us. Uh, you know, we're, we're probably just going to take our time and reinvest. So that's what we'll do. So on the left-hand side, we sell for a million. We pay tax, uh, we'll say a collective tax rate of 25%. So there's 250,000 out the door. It leaves a 750,000 to reinvest and it is 75% LTV, buys us 3 million in new property. On the right-hand side, you guys can see where I'm going with this. You sell for a million and don't pay any taxes, you get to reinvest that full million. The exact same LTV, exact same amount of leverage, turns $3 million in property into 4 million just because you didn't pay your taxes. You have another $250,000 working for you and leverage that out at, at a 75% LTV. That's a million dollars in new property. The difference between paying tax uh, and not doing a 1031 versus doing a 1031 and not paying tax. So you can get a million dollars more in property in this scenario. And transactions like this are very, very common. 
and this might be spread out over a couple different properties or a few different properties, but um, very, very common. And the difference on a million dollars in income alone, I mean, that might be, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 a year in income, just because you did a 1031, multiply that out over 10, 20, 30 years. You may have an extra million dollars of income just because you did a 1031. And this doesn't even include, say, 20 years later, the appreciation and price difference. That $4 million property may be worth 10, and the $3 million property may be worth, you know, seven and a half, eight million. So not only did you collect an extra, you know, eight, nine hundred thousand, a million dollars in income along the way, now you have a property that's worth a couple million dollars more. Just because you bought and bought bought real estate and held it long term. Um, a story I like to tell, uh, my best friend, his parents bought their first primary residence in Queen Anne uh, literally 50 years ago, early 1970s. They bought it for $25,000. And it was like, it was kind of a little rundown house uh, on half an acre. They got an unsolicited offer a few years ago and they had moved out a long time ago. So it had basically been a rental that they didn't really keep up that well. So they got an unsolicited offer a few years ago for like 1.6 million on a teardown on Queen Anne. Crazy, right? So they took that 1.6 million and put that down on a $5 million multifamily in like Auburn, Federal Ways, you know, South King County down there. So here's these people, super, you know, blue collar middle-class people that bought a property 50 years ago for 25,000. And now they own a property that's probably worth $6 million today. Just because they bought and, bought and held real estate long-term right? Like we can't ever guarantee what real estate is going to do year to year. I mean, even though real estate has even gone up in the last year, as crazy as it's been, there's no guarantee that it won't go down 10% next year, or there's no guarantee it won't go up 15%. Like we don't know, but over long term, real estate's going to go up. It's a tangible asset. People need it. So with examples like this, if you're holding long term, the difference on a million dollars is astronomical over time. It compounds, it accumulates. Uh, you're collecting income off that, et cetera, et cetera. So this is just an example of why 1031s are important. And again, transactions like this aren't uncommon. Um, you guys all probably know people, a uh, retired uh, Boeing engineer that owns six or seven rentals in the area. You know, that might be $5 million worth of investment property. And they may do this a few different times. So transactions like this are not uncommon, especially in the Puget Sound area. Right, investors. Um, Investors are awesome to work with, less emotional. You guys all know people buying their primary residences are super emotional. Like I, I know what I'm doing and I'm still very emotional. Like I don't think anyone ever wants to work with me if I'm buying a primary residence because I'm super emotional with it. Um, when I bought my first primary residence in 2005, like it was, it was my first time going through the process and my agent uh, my agent didn't brace me for what an inspection report would look like. And I like flipped out when I saw the inspection report and the inspection report was fine, but I flipped out. I lost it on him and started yelling at him. And like, I went crazy. And I ended up buying the house and all worked out, but he had to be thinking to himself, like this guy's a nutcase. And it's like clients, your clients that are buying their primary residences aren't nuts. They just appear that way because they're super emotional, right? Investors are much less emotional. Some are emotional at all um investor clients investor clients are looking at bottom line sorry, oh sorry ashley 
They're emotional about the numbers. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Everything about the process is emotional. And like looking at the numbers, very, very important uh, because that's what they need. You know, they're looking at bottom line. Uh, I know there's investors out there uh, that won't even look at pictures of the property. You know, they'll, they'll crunch numbers on it. Uh, they'll get an inspection and then they'll look at everything afterwards, but they don't want to get lured into the trap of, oh, this is a cute house. You know, we can do with this when it's like they can figure it out by not even looking at the pictures, by looking at the numbers, um, projected rehab costs, things like that. But, um, but yeah, much less emotional. Uh, investor clients are motivated. They have 45 days to find a new property to purchase. I'll talk about that in a, in, in a little bit. Um, but they're super motivated. They will never be the clients where you've shown them every property from Woodenville to Renton in the last 18 months and like nothing ever works for them, right? Like they're good people, but their offers are horrible and they've got bad luck. And it's like, you've wasted so much time with these people. 1031 clients aren't like that. They have 45 days. So it's like, they need to find something or they're not finding anything. So you basically, it's one of those, you get a yes or no very quickly on what's going to happen here. And multiple transactions. It's like the example I just gave you with uh, my best friend's parents. You know, they sold that, they sold a teardown for 1.6 million, bought a $5 million commercial property. It's not uncommon for us to see transactions where clients will sell something like that, uh, you know, $1.2 million rental in Ballard and buy two or three other properties totaling $4 million. So not only are you helping clients, you're getting paid very handsomely for helping them too. And investors really keep the market going. Um, so I don't say all this to tell you, oh, don't work with people buying their primary residences because that's your bread and butter. But having a little side book of investors uh, is definitely gonna help you, especially in down markets. Because if you were in the market you know, in 2008, um, it was crazy. It, like, it felt like nothing would ever move. Like real estate was frozen. Like it literally didn't feel like, you know, a single house would sell anywhere. It was crazy. But you know who was buying properties? You know who bought at the bottom of the market? Investors. There are a ton of investors with cash right now that I don't even think they think we're at the bottom. And you know what? Maybe we are. Uh, I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. But there's a lot of investors with cash right now that are just hoping and praying every night that the market drops a little further so they can go in and start gobbling up properties on the cheap. So again, it's great to work with investors because they're less emotional, they're motivated, and you get paid very well for helping them. Uh, how can we help investor classes? So if you guys ever wanna do uh, like a, a presentation in person, if you wanna do a webinar conference call with, uh, with your investors, uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm more than happy to, uh, to assist with that. All right. But the 1031, you're not really eliminating taxes, right? You're deferring taxes. We all had a grandpa who said two things in life are inevitable, death and taxes, right? Well, only one of those really is because guess what? We have the taxing figured out. Your heirs get a step up in cost basis. So uh, let me give you an example of that. Uh, so my best friend's parents, they bought that property for $25,000. That's, that's essentially their cost basis, we'll say. And now it's worth, say, $6 million. If they were to just sell it today, they would have a huge tax bill, an astronomical tax bill. But let's say they died today, and my friend inherited that property. 
he would inherit it. His cost basis would be the value the day they died. So he could theoretically turn around and sell it tomorrow. And once he pays out commissions and stuff, maybe even take a loss on the property. That's crazy, right? So a lot of your investor clients, um, especially the savvy investors, they love real estate, but they're always going to own real estate. They'll have their own little portfolio of real estate. And granted, yeah, they may sell off some properties that are paying to manage, don't cash flow, whatever the case is, but they're always going to own real estate. They'll have their own little mutual fund of real estate. And they're going to pass that on to their heirs tax-free and never pay taxes. So make sure you don't let your clients cash out of real estate and pay their tax. Just help them exchange into something that better hits their goals. I can't stress this enough. Uh, but we came up with a phrase a few years ago to make sure people never forget this concept. It's called swap until you drop. Now, same taxpayer requirement. Super important to remember. So if your clients are in a partnership, uh, assuming it's not a spousal partnership, like a husband and wife LLC, let's say it's, it's three or four people. If your clients are on title as a partnership, that partnership that sells also needs to buy. They can't break it up in the middle of the exchange. Ac Acme Incorporated can't break up you know, the corporation in the middle of exchange and all the shareholders go their separate ways and buy different properties. It doesn't work like that. Whoever the taxpayer is on title that sells also needs to buy. So for example, uh, in Washington, we're a community property state. So if the client resides in Washington, they could actually sell as a spousal LLC if it's just them, we'll say a husband and wife, and buy as uh, individuals, for example, like say joint tenants, or they can buy as that partnership if they really want to. But that wouldn't work if they reside in Oregon. So if you have clients and say like they live in Portland, but they're buying a property up here, the spousal LLC laws and rules are completely different for them because they're a common law state. They're not community property like Washington. So this is super confusing. This is something that clients need to work with their CPA on and make sure that uh, vesting and stuff all lines up for what they want to do. But the one thing to remember is that whoever sells has to buy. Whether it's a corporation, a partnership, an individual, whoever that is that sells also needs to buy. Okay, like-kind property. Uh, one of the most uh, confusing things to investors, especially investors that have never done 1031s, uh, and it's their first 1031, figuring out what like-kind means. Because if we think like-kind, we think same thing, right? So if someone's selling land, they would have to buy land because that's like-kind. I mean, the space needle isn't like-kind with land, but guess what? The IRS says it is. Anything held for business or investment use is like-kind. Any type of real property held for business or investment use is like-kind. So like there's, there really is no difference between the space needle and 50,000 acres of raw land in Tennessee. It's the exact same thing to the IRS. 30-year uh, leases, this is interesting. Uh, if your clients have, say, like a 25-year uh, uh, lease, if they buy a Taco Bell uh, with a 25-year lease and like two five-year options to extend past 30 years, that's treated as fee simple property. If your clients have uh, some sort of gain issue on Native American land that they own, uh, on, say, like a 50-year lease, that's exchangeable as fee, fee simple property. Uh, retail, industrial you know, commercial. I mean, you can really get off into the weeds here with like water rights, like wetland mitigation credits, like all this weird stuff that people don't even know what it is, is exchangeable. 
So when it comes to like kind, it's a very, very broad definition. Um, let me back up, 1033. So 1033, eminent domain. Uh, this has been popping up a lot the last few years with like light rail and everything. Um, but if your clients, and this also works for condemned property, say like your, your client's rental burns to the ground, uh, or there's an eminent domain issue, they would do, what's, they would do uh, a 1033 exchange. One, they it's nothing they would need to work with us on. It's all self-reporting on their taxes, but they would want to work with their CPA. Um, two, like kind means like kind when it comes to 1033. So if a client has a motel, um, a motel in, uh, you know, federal way and the light rail comes in and, and, you know, takes it through eminent domain, they would have two years to find another motel. They couldn't buy a gas station with it. That's not like kind when it comes to 1033. 1033 can be confusing. So if you ever hear 1033, eminent domain, condemned property, uh, any of those things. I mean, I can I can answer basic questions, but they definitely need to be referred to their CPA because rules are completely different for 1033 and 1031. Mm -hmm. So another not like so not like kind properties because it sounds like everything qualifies, and sure everything held for uh, business or investment use does qualify. But what doesn't qualify? Personal use properties, primary residences, second homes, uh, vacation homes. Uh, uh, see, inventory dealer properties, builder properties. This is why like Lennar Homes or KB or Pulte or whoever, any of those home builders don't do 1031 exchanges. That's inventory for them. That's their business. They have to pay tax just like the rest of us. Uh, flippers don't qualify. So if you work with flippers, granted, there's less of them now than there were a year ago, um, but they're still out there. And if you work with flippers, they don't qualify. Because the IRS has said there needs to be long-term intent for business or investment use. So then the question is, well, what's long-term intent mean? Well, the IRS has never defined it. But many CPAs will say, if you hold the property for a year, and get some rents on it, report some sort of rental or business income, you're gonna be okay. More conservative CPAs may say hold for two years just to be safe and remove all doubt. But that being said, we've seen clients, we, we've seen clients do exchanges after holding for six months uh, because they get an unsolicited offer, offer or something and their intent was never to sell, but they got an offer they couldn't refuse and their CPA says, absolutely do a 1031 exchange. So these rules aren't set in stone. If your clients are flippers, then yeah, they're. Unless they slow down, collect some rents, and you know, hold for a year or two, they're probably not going to qualify. But but anyone else, any of your traditional investors that just have investment property rentals or what have you, um, you know, there's not a hard and fast rule for them. But if they hold for a year, they're probably going to be okay. All right, timeframes: the nuts and bolts of 1031, uh, day zero on the exchange, close of escrow. This means you need to set up your 1031 before close of escrow. I can't stress this enough. Uh, you can't retroactively start a 1031 exchange. And this happens all the time where clients will call and say, uh, Kyle, I need to set up a 1031 exchange. I'll say, great, where's escrow? They'll say, oh, it closed, uh, it closed last Tuesday. I'm like, well, yeah, you can't do a 1031 exchange. And they're like, well, I know I can't touch money, so I never had, had escrow wired. It doesn't matter. Once the transaction closes, it's too late to set up an exchange. 
realistically, you know, it takes a little time to put these in place. So we try to we try to target at least a week before closing before structuring the 1031 exchange. So if the clients haven't closed yet, we could probably figure something out, maybe get an extension, do something. But if they've already closed, it's too late. There's no going back to set up the exchange. From close of escrow, they have 45 days to identify new property to purchase. There are three rules of identification. The first rule is the most common rule, the three property rule. Uh, clients sell their investment property. They can identify up to three properties of any value to purchase. Pretty straightforward. And this is what most people do because they're gonna buy you know, one, two, maybe three properties. But if that rule doesn't work, uh, we've seen a lot of investors buying like say Huntsville, Alabama, where real estate's a lot cheaper. I mean, they, they may sell a duplex in Ballot for uh, $1.3 million. And they can buy five or six rentals in Huntsville, Alabama with cash. So if they want to do that, they want to buy uh, you know, a handful of rentals somewhere where real estate's cheaper, the three property rule doesn't work because they're buying more than three properties. So they'd go to the next rule, meaning they could identify any number of properties, but collectively they couldn't total more than 200% of what they sold for. So if that client sells for 1.3 million, they could theoretically, assuming they're gonna buy, identify and buy more than three properties, they could theoretically identify an unlimited number of properties, totaling no more than 2.6 million, 200% of what they sold for. And if that rule doesn't work, if the clients uh, want to identify the entire you know, city of Bellevue, they theoretically could do that, but the caveat is the catch is that they would have to close on basically everything. 95% of the value identified, otherwise the entire exchange fails. So the only time we'd see this is if your client's buying a portfolio property and they're either gonna buy that, prop, buy that portfolio or just walk away and pay the taxes. You probably wanna remember the three property rule. The other two can be super confusing, uh, but most importantly, uh, there is a rule that will work for no matter what your clients are doing. Okay, 45 days to identify, 180 days to close. Keep in mind, these are calendar days. So if you're buying a, say you identify a new build, and you're 180 days on a Sunday, you better close on day 178 because you're not closing on the weekend. So, and this is the same with identification. If you're 45 days on a Sunday, you, know, you can submit everything via DocuSign, but you know, I'm not gonna be around at eight o'clock at night to answer questions on a Sunday night, right? So, and you can't push it, push it off till Monday. So we tell people, um, you know, if you want to get everything lined up, if you want to check and make sure everything's submitted correctly, it looks okay, um, you know, maybe call us that Friday, that Friday. That way we can go through it. If there's any issues, you know, that, that, that appear, we can let you know. The only time there are extensions issued are for federally declared disasters. These are not common. These are, I think, hurricanes in Florida, you know, massive flooding anywhere. Um, wildfires that burn down half a state, like big things like that, basically national news stories. Um, but even then, like the Oso mudslides up in, um, you know, Arlington or uh, Snohomish County a, few, a number of years ago, like all those people died and tragic, tragic thing. But it wasn't a federally declared disaster. Like Governor Inslee declared a state of emergency, but it wasn't a federally declared disaster. So uh, we basically tell clients, you know, don't count on getting an extension. Granted, if you're directly affected by one, 
by a, a federally de declared disaster, you know, we'll cross that bridge if it happens, but don't assume that you're going to get an extension. Uh, mixed use exchanges. Um, duplex. This is a very common one. Let's say you live in one half or not the other half. Uh, the half you run out, that's what you would exchange. The half you live in, you take the two fifty dollars or $500,000 primary residence exclusion on. But again, the half you run out, you hold for business or investment use, that's what's exchangeable. Uh, Mother-in-law unit. If you have a monster-in-law unit in back, uh, that's actually exchangeable uh, because that's investment property. I mean, if your mother-in-law lives there and like literally and doesn't pay, doesn't pay rent or anything, then it's personal use. But assuming you like run it out or what have you, that's actually exchangeable, whatever the value is. And you can just, you should be depreciating it. So your CPA should be able to tell you, you know, what percentage of the property, what it's worth. Uh, but you can always get a broker's opinion of value too, to figure that out. Um, Old Victorian, this is basically what I would refer to uh, as a split use property. Uh, where let's say I have an old Victorian, I live in the 2000 square foot downstairs, but I rent out the thousand square foot upstairs on Airbnb, right? Whatever the values of that thousand square foot upstairs, that's what I'm gonna do the 1031 exchange on. So just because I live on part of the property, doesn't mean I can't 1031 part of the property as well. Uh, let's skip that. Okay, uh, reverse exchange. So reverse exchange, everything flips around. So instead of closing on your sale first, you close on your purchase first, then you have 180 days to close on your sale. Uh, a normal 1031, it's a thousand, it's less than a thousand bucks. The reverse exchange would start at like six thousand dollars. It's a completely different process. In a normal 1031, we just take, we just assign in, take title to funds, meaning we hold funds for the duration of the exchange. In the reverse exchange, we actually have to take title to that property. So we file an LLC with the state. Um, depending on where the property is, uh, you know, there may be title and escrow fees paid twice uh, by the exchanger. Granted, we take title and then deed title over to you uh, if we can't assign the LLC. So there's two title and escrow fees. Uh, clients can't can get traditional loans, can form loans on the property. Uh, so they'd need to have cash or hard money. So long story short, we don't push clients or encourage them to do a reverse exchange unless it makes sense for them. And just because they're complicated and expensive. I mean, that's just scratching the surface. There's a lot more to these as well. But if a client needs to close on the purchase first, there's a way to do it. Just know that it's gonna be a little cumbersome and expensive to do. And lastly, uh, DSTs, Delaware Statutory Trust. So I think this is an awesome marketing idea for agents and brokers. Uh, DSTs are passive real estate investments. Uh, where you're really just paying a trustee to manage the property for you. It might be, uh, you know, commercial or industrial property. Uh, you kind of like an Amazon warehouse, for example, that is worth $70 million. And the company that, that opens up that, that DST that buys the property may open it up to the first, say, 25 investors. So you park your $2 million in there. And all of a sudden you're, you know, whatever, a 3% owner of an Amazon warehouse. You're just collecting a check every month. It's 100% passive. You're just paying a trustee to manage the property for you. Uh, you could have a portfolio of triple net lease properties, say like you know, Walgreens, Taco Bell, Starbucks, AutoZones, things like that. Um, 
one of the catches is, is that they have to be, these are securities and they're a special type of securities. Uh, so they have to be, clients have to be accredited investors, meaning a net worth of a million dollars or more. That being said, any of your investors that own a rental are probably have a million dollars right there. Um, so that's generally not an issue up here. Uh, but that being said, you know, they would still need to uh, make sure they, they cross that million dollar threshold. Uh, the downside is, is that because they're securities, you don't get paid when they go into the DST. But you get a listing you probably would have never gotten before. DSTs are extremely popular, extremely popular. I can't stress this enough with older investors right now. Because who owns all the wealth in this country? Baby boomers, right? And what are they doing? They're retiring. What do they own? A lot of real estate. What do they not want to do? Manage properties. So as soon as they find out, they can sell their rentals. That they, they love the real estate aspect, but they don't like managing it or um, any of the other things that go along with it. They can actually sell those investment properties, do a 1031 exchange, and go into a DST, where they become a fractional uh, owner of, a, say, an Amazon warehouse, for example. And they're just going to collect a check every month. Super, super easy for them. But again, you get that listing because so many clients go into DSTs as soon as they find out. So it's nothing you have to be an expert on, but I can definitely connect you with local firms that handle DSTs and you can you know, get some sort of referral thing going or just I can make introductions. Um, but DSTs are good to know for all of us from a 40,000 foot view. Um, just because they're so popular right now, we see so many investors going into DSTs and it's just a great way to get listings too if you go after listings. I have a question on that. Um, so when you depart from a DST, what does that look like on the exchange side? Yep, so uh, great question. So clients can exchange back into another DST. They can exchange into fee simple property. Uh, we personally think that, you know, because over the last, you know, really since COVID started, it seems like every investor has left the state. Every investor has bought property in one of five states, Idaho, Arizona, Texas, Tennessee, or Florida. It's like clockwork. Uh, but we think there's actually gonna be, uh, there could be uh, a lot of investors that come back, right? Like if, if, if we hit a rough patch with the market, uh, if Washington State cleans up a little bit uh, and real estate goes up, goes up too much in some of those other areas and comes back to life here. We think a lot of investors, like once they get out of the DSTs, they'll feel more comfortable coming back into Washington. People may exchange back out. But yeah, when clients, when the DST sells a property, clients can do an exchange into any type of fee simple property. And that means that you got their listing and they went into the DST, but they may exchange back out when they sell in say five years and exchange back into fee simple property in the area. So it's a great way to get in front of people and a great talking point. And the valuation would be um, based on what they get out of the DST. And uh, what comes up. Correct, yep, 100%. But this is, uh, this is my last slide as I wrap up here, uh, try to keep it between 30 and 40 minutes. So I think we're there. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is a great just overview. There's, um, like I said, it's a pretty dry topic, but at the same time, I think you're, um, you're saying, what is the saying again? It's um, swap until you drop. Yeah, swap until you drop. I yeah, think that basically right. says it all, right? It's like you're deferring the taxes and and really building the wealth that way. And um, I think it's a good tool that people are often um, scared of, scared of yep. exploring. 
Um, and also, you know, sometimes people want to know that they can get their money out with, you know, money sure. in pocket. And so you kind of have to explain to them, you know, real estate is not the two to three, two to five year play anymore. I think we're all talking to our clients about looking okay. to the long term. I sure. mean, look at minimum five, 10, 10 plus um, yeah. to be able to to survive the um, ups and downs. Um, but we all know that, you know, over the grand period of time where I heard we're a yo-yo on an elevator, basically is what it is. Yes, yep, yep, 100%. So, um, but thank you. It doesn't look like there's any questions, but that was a great, awesome. great review. And um, I really, really do appreciate your time. A anytime. Uh, yeah, if you guys think of anything, uh, shoot Ashley an email. She can connect us and uh, more than happy to answer those. So yeah, have a great weekend, everyone. Cool. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.